Welcome to the Top Gear Magazine podcast. Hello and welcome to the first ever Top Gear meeting of great minds. I've got next to me four of the biggest and most influential people in the car industry, the performance car industry, certainly. Thank you for coming, gentlemen. To start with, I thought we'd begin with that really awkward moment in meetings when you go around and you introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about yourself. So I'll go first, if that's right. Uh, so I'm Jack Ricks, editor of Top Gear magazine. I've been writing about cars and presenting videos about cars for just over 15 years now. John? John Hennessy from Houston, Texas. We make fast cars go faster, fast cars and trucks. We also build the Venom F5. So, uh, Hope's my wife, got five kids all in the business, and just glad to be here with you guys. Cool. Matt Rimac, founder and CEO of Bugatti Rimac, and uh, well, founder of Rimac and now CEO of Bugatti Rimac. Uh, I'm still in my first job, still doing the first job, and uh, sitting among uh, many of my heroes today, so thanks a lot for the invitation. And do you want to remind us uh, how old you are? 34. I can't believe I'm not the youngest person here. <laughs> Imagine how that makes me feel. Sorry, Gordon. <laughs> uh, Gordon Murray, uh, uh, chairman of uh, the Gordon Murray Group, and uh, I've been in sort of racing and performance cars for 55 years. And I've only had three jobs. So I had uh, 17 years uh, running and designing Brabham's and the Brabham Formula One team, a short stint of three years in McLaren at Formula One, and then started uh, McLaren Automotive and had about 15, 17 years of that. 15 years ago, started our own business uh, at Gordon Mary Group. So um, I've, I've had a, a fantastic life, really. I've, I've just been paid pretty well to do my hobby all my life. And, um, and I'm still enjoying it just as much now as I did way back in the 60s. And once again, it's, it's great fun to be with uh, three great people from the motoring industry, these guys. Um, so it should be a good evening. Yeah, Christian von Koenigsegg from Sweden. Dreamt about building cars since I can remember, probably around five, six years old, uh, since the dream came alive. And I really wanted to do nothing else in life. So when I was uh, 19, I started my first company because I realized I probably need to make some money so I can afford to build cars because it's probably expensive. And uh, amazingly, that little trading company, the idea was buy something for X, sell it for Y, and hopefully make a profit in between. It ended up being plastic bags, pens, frozen chicken, whatever. Three years later, I had a little company with three employees, and I said to myself, what was it I wanted to do again? It was building cars. And I proven to myself, I can make a business, so now I'll start. And then I was 22 years old, that was 1994. It took me a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to deliver the first car to a customer in 2002. And uh, I just kept on going ever since, I guess. And here we are today. And really, I'm uh, flattered and honored to be with these gentlemen here today, so. Wow, that wasn't awkward at all. This is the best meeting I've ever been to. <laughs> so the rules, uh, just a word on the rules. There are no rules, really. We want this to just be an open debate. Um, ideally, you know, the, I want the four of you talking to each other and swapping opinions and ideas and I'll just fade quietly into the background and disappear. Um, in terms of the format, you'll notice this beautiful object we have over here. This is the golden tombola of topics. 
So the idea is one by one, you'll come up, we'll give it a spin, choose a ping pong ball with a number on it, and that number corresponds to one of the topics that I've got written down here on my phone. And simple as that, really. And off we go. We'll start the discussion. So do you want to go first, John, as your closest? You bet. There we go. Right. All right. Let's hope the door doesn't fall off the first time I do this. There we go. Is this like top roulette? It is. I've given it a spin before, everyone. Number three. Number three. Right. You can hold on to that ball. Um, number three. So, can an EV be more exciting, ever be more exciting to drive than a combustion engine car? And if so, how do we get there? Oh, <laughs> Matt is itching to take this one. Who wants to Shall go I first? Go? Yeah. I think, I think in a straight line it can. I think in a straight line, yeah. <laughs> I've got a test of plaid and I know your car's faster than the plaid, so. Yeah, I think that EV, for me, again, I own one. We're kind of evaluating that segment of the market. Um, I think that weight and battery technology and fast charging and charging networks, and there's a lot a lot left to come. I think EVs, maybe you go to Circuit of the Americas and depends on the vehicle, but you have to have better brakes because of all the weight. But I think there's certainly a fun factor there, but I don't think it's, it's still early because I don't think it's checked the boxes that traditional sports cars, hyper cars have so far. Again, you're going to drill everybody in the drag race, but <laughs> if we go to the Norwich Life, it might be a little different story. I, so. I th personally, I think it's a timeline thing. Uh, it's a generational thing and a timeline thing. I think at the moment, the answer is absolutely categorically an electric car can't give you all the emotional stuff. Somebody my age, or even somebody down to maybe 30, uh, 25, 30, it'll never give you the emotional experience of a lightweight dynamic motor car with the noise and the, and the pickup speed and all the rest of it. However, there will be a time when people of a certain age are not here anymore <laughs> and other people don't remember that stuff. So I think it's just a timeline thing. It's the it's same as- job to, to you, make sure that they do remember. You know, right, right now, right now, we've got probably a generation of young people that have never driven a rear wheel drive car for example. And as we know, as enthusiasts, it's a completely different experience from driving a front-wheel drive car. And I think it's the same with electric cars. They will become the norm. And then relatively speaking, absolutely, people that build sporty ones and quick ones and ones that handle, um, that will be above the normal everyday family electric car. So it's just a timeline. It's not, it's, you can't, you can't sort of, um, just draw a line now and say, that's it, you know, it'll change. My 16-year-old uh, son, he grew up in the backseat of a Tesla. I mean, he really enjoys it and enjoyed it. And I, I'm very much a spokesperson for electric cars and I'm involved in it myself, of course. But he's a fan of like JDM cars, Japanese cars from the 80s. And he knows kind of the engine block numbers on, on I don't know, Toyota straight six and the difference in, in details, like, a, true car nut and I said aren't you supposed to just be interested in like self-driving cars or like no no it's so boring it's this and that and you you can you can tweak it and tune it in the sound and the vibration listen to that so it's interesting he didn't grow up with that and he's still totally into it and that gives me kind of a sense we're not looking at the this kind of steam engine being replaced by the combustion engine meaning combustion engines being replaced by electrical motors and I think that the difference here is um, power to weight and what kind of fuel you can run in the future. If you can run on a CO2 negative fuel, which is possible to create, where you have uh, amazing uh, emission control, um, 
there is no uh, like environmental detriment. And actually, the more you drive, the less CO2 there is there because you pay kind of an environmental tax when you produce the fuel. Why not? But having said all of that, most likely an electric car will be lighter than a combustion engine car in 10 years. But will it be more fun and more emotional? We will see. And of course, you can mix and match. So I think the future is super interesting, and we don't really know what's out there yet. Let's hear from the expert. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I'm also a petrol head. You know, my dream garage consists of mostly 99% of combustion engine cars, you know. And I agree with you totally. Like, you know, also future Bugattis will still have a combustion engine. I think it's a really important part. And I think especially Europe is shooting itself in the foot, saying there shouldn't be any combustion engine cars anymore. And that's kind of changing now with the new legislation proposals. But you know, we in Europe, we are basically, uh, with very few exceptions outside of Europe, the hypercar industry of the world and exporting these interesting products around the world that don't really move the needle in terms of um, emissions. So yes, all the cars, like normal cars, should be electric on the road. And there will be exciting um, cars on the road that are um, electric, but I think the combustion engine should remain there for enthusiasts. Like, you don't want to hear a diesel, you know, uh, golf nagging on the street. You want that to be silent, but to hear a V12 or something else, you know, naturally aspirated engine on the road, I think that should still happen in the decades to come. For me personally, like, you know, I'm my biggest self-critic, and if, if something is wrong with a electric car or with our cars, whatever, I'm the first one to tell you that. But actually driving the Nevada, and you unfortunately didn't have the experience yet, it kind of ruins everything else for you. Like everything else feels really slow after that. And it's not just straight line performance, you know, with four motors, things you can do in corners with torque vectoring, drifting, control drifting, you know, four wheel drifting, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just really totally different level. Yes, it's heavy. It will get a lot lighter. I think we can do a lot to, to make the cars lighter. And yes, there's lack of, of, perform, of emotions in terms of noise, but there's so much other stuff that makes up for it. Um, so who are our customers? You know, a typical Bugatti customer has dozens of cars. And so will your customer and all of our customers have dozens of cars. So they have a bunch of V12s, they have V10s, you know, and this is so much different and gives them a different experience. So I guess there's space for both. And, I personally really hope that the combustion engine will still be allowed to be around because it's just such a beautiful piece of machinery coming out of the ingenuity of humanity, basically. It's, Hi. yeah, so it, it shouldn't go away. And, and I guess in this age of sort of, sort of sh cell shortage for your normal car, it's not ideal to package a lot of cells in a car that's not used as a daily driver. If you can have fewer cells, renewable fuel, your daily driver is fully electric, that makes more sense and it's better for the environment. And also if there, these kind of cars can push the development of new sustainable fuels, it also means that can spill off to the existing car fleet and make that much cleaner than it is today. So I think the world has gone a little bit from being like, oh, electric car will never happen, like seven or eight years ago, Elon Musk is crazy, to there is nothing else. Yeah. And of course, the truth is not as simple as any either of those two. So uh, there seemed to be some sobering up. And I think also this, the ban of the combustion engine is usually misunderstood for the ban of fossil fuel, which is a good thing to ban. But the combustion engine can run on many different things than fossil fuel. So, uh, yeah, whatever. Maybe also a bit of encouragement for the enthusiasts here. At least I don't see any legislation 
that will stop us from making combustion engine supercars or hypercars in limited volumes beyond 2035. So 15 years from today, I don't see any legislation right now that will prevent us from doing that. So it's still like in the foreseeable time, there will be very exciting combustion Lo engines. Logic should prevail. Yeah. Hopefully. It doesn't always, but sometimes it does. No. Hopefully. Hopefully the market gets to determine. You know, hopefully the enthusiasts like ourselves, and it's not just all of our clients that can afford multi-million dollar cars, but it's for like our kids and our grandkids to be able to start off with an entry level BMW, even though you blew up your engine, you know, putting the electric motor in there created your whole business. But I just feel like that we all probably have a story about like that first internal combustion car that we connected with. And now again, with your son growing up riding around a Tesla as your daily, you know, he's all into JDM. That's, okay. that's cool. Mm. So I don't see that going away, yeah. hopefully not. All right, I think we covered that. Mate? Yep, absolutely. Right, come on. Let's... Uh, drum roll. Drum roll. Pick your bull. Five. Number five. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what is the future of top speed and performance figures? Does anyone want or need to go faster than 300 miles an hour? And what will be the true measure of performance in the future? Well, nobody needs to go 400, 500 kilometers per hour, 300 miles per hour. Nobody needs a hypercar, right? But I think life is not only about problems we need to solve and to survive. Because, you know, I hate when people say Elon Musk is trying to fly a rocket to Mars. There's so many people uh, who are, you know, uh, sick and uh, poor and hungry in the world. Well, if you apply that to everything, you have... Nobody of us should have any pleasure in life, right? You should dedicate everything, all of us, you know, you should have one pair of shoes, one pair of pants. You know, you shouldn't watch TV. You shouldn't do anything that's beyond survival. And it's the same with, with what we are doing here. I think, you know, when we have, for example, Supercar Owner Circle going through Zagreb and through Croatia, where there's, you know, 50 hypercars coming to the city, the city stops. There's tens of thousands of people on the road, little kids, you know, touching these cars, taking photos, you know, uh, sitting into the car, being inspired by it. Which other product in the world can do that? What else can you put in front of people to cause that fascination? And I always say like cars are the accumulation of human ingenuity knowledge. You have everything there, material sciences, fluid dynamics, simulations, electronics, software, everything is in there. Plus, it's a piece of art. We truly care about every detail. Uh, I know that Gordon cares about every holder of the car, that it does multiple purposes. Uh, Christian cares that every piece of the car is beautiful. The suspension needs to be beautiful. The engine needs to be beautiful. And one of the elements is also speed. So with performance, we are lifting the bar higher and higher and showing what's possible. And it's an interesting competition that has been going on, well, uh, with, since Gordon's uh, F1. I think that was one of the most famous uh, records that has been broken. And then for the last 20 years, the reality between uh, Koenigsegg and uh, Bugatti and also Hennessy. Um, and we are now at the point, well, close to 500 kilometers power. I think that both Koenigsegg and Bugatti said they will never do a car that's faster than the current ones? I think so, yeah. 
but I'm not sure if we're going to hold our, our word it's a on it. We'd like to announce today, uh, based on today, we're going to go bigger. No, no. Yeah. Let's see. No, I mean, uh, I think you're onto something. Uh, I, I, I say to me, what is the biggest contribution Koenigsegg is giving to society? I mean, we're supplying very few expensive cars to the wealthy car enthusiast. So, um, of, co of course, we kind of try to motivate, yeah, but we uh, invent and create interesting technology and trickle down and this and that. But I think it's just that showing you can live your dream, showing that stuff out of the ordinary are possible, kind of lifting the spirits and, and making people believe the world is a bit more interesting than what they are seeing in front of themselves. I think that's the biggest contribution. And I think that is absolutely super important for society to, to to aspire to things that, that is possible. And it's of course, uh, it's not always just fun and easy, but uh, that is part of what makes it exciting. And also what people are willing to strive for when they want to fulfill their dreams. So it's just, we're living examples of. I think we're all living our dream, yeah. right? To some degree, I mean, within our businesses yeah. and our creations. And I think that I'm sure each one of you guys, I hear it on a regular basis, the inspiration that we give to others, primarily young people, but not always just young people, and I remember I was standing on the side of a, of a test track watching an F1 go by at 220 plus miles per hour with Mario Andretti 30 years ago in West Texas. And again, that's one of my inspirations. So I mean, it's, again, maybe whatever I do or one of your guys' cars goes out and sets some sort of a speed record, whether it's 300 or 500K or you know, world's fastest EV. Uh, again, I think that there's, there's more to it for us, or more to it for me and our family and our business than just selling cars and growing our business. I, I feel like that we touch lives in a certain way. And I think kind of like NASA back when Kennedy said, we're gonna go to the moon. And then, you know, again, we go to the moon and step foot in the moon. And that like, when I'm a kid, like I wanna be an astronaut. Now that didn't work out, but now I'm building <laughs> fast cars. So. Well, there's still time, John. So, yeah, so, I, so back to your original question, I, I think that, you know, performance validation is always important. People always look at the numbers, but ultimately, like when I'm driving a car, when our clients are driving a car, the feedback I get is more about the sensation, the experience. Nobody's putting their V-Box in their window to see, oh, did I, did I crack a 1.890 to 60 this time around? Maybe they do, but I feel like, but again, that's something that, you know, the top gear viewers want to see something. We, I mean, for our business, I always want to climb a higher mountain. You know, if we achieve a, some sort of a speed record, like, we go 270, you go 285 or whatever, and you guys, you know. But how far are we going to go? How far? <laughs> I don't well, know. I, I think, I mean, there is a, a price to pay for top speed in the sense of everything else the car is supposed to do. I mean, you have to bleed off your downforce. Uh, you have to have certain tire technology, suspension technology, gear ratios. Uh, it adds weights unless, if, if you want to have it all, it adds weights. And if you don't want to have it all, it's a compromise. So. Um, Given what the road system looks like, it doesn't make sense to go any faster or even that fast. It's just as simple as that. And of course, if you want to go faster, you can go out into to the Salt Lakes with a rocket car. That's much faster anyway. So, but if you want to do it with a road car, it's reached its point for, for the foreseeable future, I would say, unless the road system changed completely. Yeah, I, I, I agree with these guys, and particularly what you said, Matt, but it, you, you need to be inspirational if you're if you're in this sort of business. Um, it's not all, all motor cars, it could be, as you say, you know, landing on the moon. But we do need those things to to push people and make people look up to things and be excited, um, definitely. Um, 
Having said that, I can honestly put my hand in my heart and say when I did the McLaren F1, I, I had no performance targets in mind. It just happened to go fast. You know, I, did, I didn't set out to do... The only reason I calculated the top speed was to choose the gear ratios, basically. It just happened to do 240 miles an hour, which I think is still an NA record. For it a is, record. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it's, it's not... I think it's absolutely valid to have targets like that, whether they're lap times or top speeds or zero to 100 miles an hour, because it is inspirational. In our particular company, we don't focus on that at all. We focus on just the driving. That's why our slogan is driving perfection. Um, if anybody thinks, you know, a thousand kilo car with 650 horsepower isn't gonna feel fast, um, you don't have to measure it, <laughs> it's gonna feel quick. Um, we, we just, we, our focus, we're all different, but our focus is entirely on the driving experience. And as, as Christian said, you have to, when you have targets, you have to think about those targets and you make small compromises, you know, whether it's acceleration or traction or a lap, a lap time is, is the worst one, trying to do a fast lap. You know, you compromise so much in the, in the motor car. But some people, for some people, that's aspirational and fine. It, if it suits them, I think, I think it has a place, but it's just not us. Okay, on that note, Gordon, shall we switch it up? Here we go. Oh, hang on. I didn't give it a, didn't give it a mix. Yeah. There we go. Right. What have we got? Four. Number four. Okay. Let me figure this out. Okay. Um, oh, interesting. How important is failure? I think it's fantastically important as a designer. What's been your biggest failure? Uh, oh, I've got plenty of those, <laughs> plenty of those. But I think generally, if you talk about failure generically, it's really important. As a designer and an engineer, in fact, not just motor cars again, just, you know, well, I've designed a lot more than motor cars, but you learn so much more from your mistakes than you do from doing things correctly. And once again, when you do things correctly, you very seldom get a pat on the back from anybody. You know, sure, if you do a, a whole motor car correctly, everybody goes, yeah, that's good. But, okay. but it's individual parts of the design. You know, when you do something really well, you can pat yourself on the back and go, well, I've made that work that much better or that much lighter or whatever. But it's the mistakes you really learn from. Yeah, you know, and I'm not just talking about the design uh, in business and, and how you manage people, for example. And I've probably learned, I mean, I've been managing businesses since 1974. And I was running a Formula One team when I was 27. And uh, I, I've learned so much about um, people management and, and business, as well as design and engineering. But I've had lots of, lots of mistakes. Is there one that sticks out? I remember you telling me you, um, you, you chopped up a, the BT46. Yeah, that's probably the worst mistake in Formula One was um, we built, it was the Swedish Grand Prix in 78, and right. we had just, just got the fan not to explode with five days to go um, by casting the blades in magnesium. They'd been composite blades up until then. And we had built, we'd finished two fan cars, and we had a third monocoque, and all the parts complete, but the car wasn't assembled. So I said to the guys, just chuck it in the back of the truck. We changed the fans with like one day before we set out for Sweden. And I said, just chuck all the bits for the third car in the back in case we have an accident and we can build up a third car. 
And uh, you know the story, we won the race and the, the, the CSI came and sealed the car and they came back and measured it, said it was legal. But then the other manufacturers talked Bernie into withdrawing the car. And I was so upset about the car being withdrawn. I agreed because it was for the good of Formula One and Bernie was just starting to get powerful in controlling uh, the Constructors Association. And Chapman basically said, if you don't withdraw the car, they said we could race it till the end of the year. If you don't withdraw the car, uh, that's the end of the Constructors Association. And Bernie came to me and said, you know, please, can we withdraw the car? You know what my answer was. Uh, we could have won the champ. Every, every race we finished, we would have won by half a minute or something. We were two seconds a lap quicker. And um, I was so upset that we did withdraw the car. And about a week later, the mechanics in the workshop came to me and said, we've got this third car in the corner of the workshop and it's taking up space. What are we going to do with it? And I said, take it outside and chop it up. <laughs> <Wow>. So <laughs> thinking back, I probably shouldn't have, you know. It's going to be a treasure hunt heat, now. Heat, yeah. of the, heat of the moment sort of uh, oh. action. I think, uh, yeah, from my side, uh, life is full of mistakes and I have a very simple philosophy. If you manage to do two out of three right, you have a chance to go forward. So I would say 33% wrong most of the time. Um, and uh, I would say you know, you, you, the question was, what, what's your biggest failure or something like that? So maybe the, the biggest that I can think of in, in, in my company or, or, or time as a man doing this is, is when our factory burned down. It was not a failure we had any uh, kind of uh, control over, but it was a failure to the company. It burned down. And I remember saying to myself, it's good that we're used to fighting hard to make this business run, because otherwise having the factory burned down would probably be a huge headache if you're not used to fighting for your life to get your job done. And of course, we managed to save most of the components and equipment in the factory when it happened. Uh, and we got uh, shelter a couple of days later, and two weeks later we stood at the Geneva Motor Show and sold the car again, with everyone knowing the factory burnt down. So it, it wasn't really a, a failure which we had control over, but we dealt with it, I think, well, because we were used to fighting against the odds and also making, fighting against a lot of rookie mistakes we did back in the days, so. Yeah. I could talk all night about failure. I got a PhD <laughs> in failure. Um, several things come to mind. Um, failure is not final. The only real failure would be to give up. I feel like all of us here have had some success with our cars and careers, but there have probably been many inflection points when I know for me personally, where I'm like, man, is this really a good idea? Should I really keep going with this? But I would have totally failed if I would have quit, but we kept on going. You know, so failure is not final. And I feel like with, with failure is an opportunity to learn. Now, I'm probably my own worst critic, and I'm certainly uh, probably my, some of my, my biggest failure in the last 31 years of being in the automotive business has probably been as a leader and as a boss. And I probably had some really good, talented people at one point that I didn't really know how to coach them, love them, uh, lead them properly. So that's probably been my biggest failure. But, th but it wasn't final, you know? And I think as I kind of was able to adapt and evolve and become more self-aware, uh, that's helped us be able to grow a better team, retain better people, and ultimately make a, make a better product. And, 
And we all fail, and, but I think again, for every, and the other thing, big thing for me is like, like failures like in, like in a competition or a race or whatever, those are moments in time for me where I was like, you can either cry about it, continue to get your ass kicked, or get better. And so that, so failure for me is probably one of the biggest motivators I've had, not just in automotive, but in life in general. Let's say <laughs> where do I start? I don't know. Like when I started out, you know, I didn't know one person in the auto industry. I didn't know an engineer. I didn't know, you know, anybody working for a car company. Nothing. You know, I converted a 1984 BMW 3 Series into an electric car, and doing that in Croatia, that you know, is least developed, one of the least developed countries in Europe, coming like industry in general, but especially auto industry. And the odds of us being here today are so slim. I mean, Christian visited us when we were just starting. We were maybe five, six employees, had the right. first car when he was going to Croatia to vacation. And, uh, you know, sometimes when I do like lectures on, uh, in universities or something like that, I search for old pictures to put in the presentation. And then, you know, some people would maybe think I would be nostalgic. Oh, look, five or 10 years ago. And I'm just always thinking, wow, what, what I had to do at that time to, to keep going and to survive and to the, pay the next salary. Uh, it was such a struggle. Like, I don't look back at these times with happy memories. I'm just like, oh, Jesus, thanks God that's behind me. We had so many crossroads where we almost died. Like, there, there's so many things coming into, into my head, like, you know, from very public things, like, you know, when... Uh, when Richard uh, Hammond cr crashed the car and we were on the brink of bankruptcy anyways. We, we should have been bankrupt at that time and then that happened. And I was like, okay, that's it now. Or, you know, uh, investors misleading us and we running out of money many times and stuff like that to technical failures. Um, but maybe one thing that I would do differently if I could tell one thing to myself that time and what I want to do dif differently now is like, you know, things change so many times in life. Like Christian said, like you, uh, you want to do 10 things and at half of them you will fail in one way or another. And it's not because of bad intent or something, but if you are too public about your plan and then you don't do exactly what you said, but maybe you do something else and this one you don't do or whatever, there's, you know, maybe um, public scrutiny about that. Why didn't you do this? You said you will do that. So uh, I kind of now don't want to show what we're doing too early, rather, you know, get very far when we are very sure we can do something and we can deliver it and then show it um, rather than you know showing too early and we saw that now also i mean nevera we showed the car in 2018 in geneva and we started to ship it uh, recently to customers so that's like you know a long time and we saw that also with others which i don't know the valkyrie with the mg project one and uh, you know these projects are complicated and of course you set yourselves very difficult targets to yourself and to your team because if you don't the project can drag on forever and we all i guess mm. felt that so i would just you know in the future be more careful about you know uh, communicating uh, plans that are not 100 percent bulletproof <laughs> apart from with us you can just tell us all your yeah, plans exactly. uh, years <laughs> tell i won't tell anyone but, no, but you have to anyone. watch out with that strategy because it makes it quite comfortable so you might drag out longer when there is not the public pressure yes that's, there's something yes. to cortez burning the ships as far as <laughs> at least internally well, we try to make it clear to our team as far as this is where we're going what we're doing and clearly you're, you're here because you never gave up 
even though you've kind of gone through a lot of adversity. So I think there's a lot of, when we're, when the, when we're in the, the heat of battle and getting our butts kicked, that was like, like, do I really want to keep doing this? But again, in the long run, I feel like, uh, you know, not giving up is the best way to saying I didn't fail. Sometimes it's masochism. I think, you know, like you keep going despite everybody, you know, hitting you. But, you know, often you are all in and there's no turning back. <laughs> And luckily, we are here. I think 20 years in Formula One teaches you a lot about failure oh too. Because you know, you're, you're there, you, you cannot miss a Grand Prix because you're out of the season. You know? So you're fundamentally at war every two weeks and you're back at base for six or seven days to make 30, 40 changes to the car. And it's just relentless. And when I, when I Bernie Eccleston was my partner for 14 years at Brabham. And, um, he is, like me, ultra, ultra competitive. I mean, I'm, I'm just terribly competitive in anything. And uh, second place is failure in Formula One. You know, nobody's happy with second place. And that's, I suppose, helped me in, in, in the future with the car companies, you know, because you do learn that it's first or nothing. I like to say I like to win, but I really hate to lose. <laughs> really hate to lose. But that's really cool that you get measured, like, Every second week. Absolutely, you are measured. You measured. Whether you like it or not, you are measured every two weeks. In front of the whole <laughs> you know exactly world. where you are. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly right. But it's funny psychologically, you know, because the year, the, the famous year in 88, where the MP44, we won 15 out of 16 races. And the company, I used to go down after every single Grand Prix, down right through the factory, through the machine shop, through the fabrication shop, and chat to everybody. And I knew everybody's, in those days, it wasn't a big team, so I knew everybody's you know, wives, their pets, where they went on holiday. And I used to go down every morning and talk to the entire shop floor. Um, and after that race in Monza that we lost, people were totally shell-shocked. It was just, they got so used to success. It was, it was time to lose. It was. And you know what? I, I told everybody it was really exactly that. I said it was really good to lose that one race because it, we, it's a reality check. Yeah. We got so used to winning every race. You know, all right, Christian von Koenig said, come on down. There are no duplicates. Let's pick it, no duplicates. <laughs> oh. we, we hand wrote these, what have you My got? My birthday, 2nd of July. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Happy 50th, buddy. You're oh, going to get a flood of birthday cards now from, from the Top Gear faithful. <laughs> yeah, well, All right, nice. number two. Oh, interesting. Um, Elon Musk, what are your thoughts on the man? Is he a good or a bad thing for the car industry? Well, I would say rather maybe, is he good or bad for the planet, perhaps? I mean, go. he's uh, otherworldly in many ways, I would say. I mean, what, what that man has managed to achieve is... Uh, I mean, if you, if you made it up as a story, no one would believe it, I would say. That's number one, right? Uh, I, I remember kind of him getting on my radar when he sold PayPal and he said, I'm going to build rockets. Uh, hmm. Kind of, I can, I can relate to that somehow. <laughs> it's just, maybe that's, I mean, if I wouldn't build cars, rocket seems like an interesting thing. It's a, something I cannot do from, from my potato field in Engelholm with no resources. But if I had sold PayPal, maybe that would be a cool thing to do. So that was interesting. And then a few years later, I'm going to build cars. Aha. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. Right. So, yeah, I followed him a bit, of course. Uh, and, um, I mean, if anyone proves you can do anything and multiply it kind of next to each other simultaneously, it's, it's Elon, right? And uh, of course, he's a character. Uh, he's a human being. Um, 
I mean, what he did to the car industry, he just shook it up completely. Uh, he also started, I mean, he started a little bit later than I did. Actually, 2007 or 2008, Koenigsegg was a bigger company than Tesla, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is kind of, what did we do since then, <laughs> comparatively? Um, but, but he started out when you were not allowed to start in the car industry. It was not an allowing industry. It's not that it's super allowing now, but now it's kind of a thing to see startups. Uh, when I started in 1994, people were laughing in my face and said the supercar is dead and this and that. But of course, he did that on a completely different level against the whole automotive industry with an electric car that no one asked for. And as I said, to, maybe during this talk or before that, uh, I mean, a few years ago, people said there is no electric car, it's never going to happen. Now it's the only thing. And, and without Elon and Tesla, that would never happen. I think that's a good thing for the planet and for us and not only for the automotive industry. And it might be cool that we one day can go to Mars as well, I guess. No, he is. I've, I've met him a couple of times. And we, we actually, one of the meetings was about potentially working together um, a few years back. And uh, he is an incredibly driven, he's probably the most driven guy I think I've ever met. And that says something, because I'm a bit single-minded at times. Oh, he had um, a F1, right? Yeah, he yes, he did. He had an right. F1. That's, yeah. that's right, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I absolutely agree. You know, the, the, the clever thing for me, or the brave thing rather than clever for me, was there weren't startups in those days in, in high volume car manufacturing. And then to be a startup in a with a brand new powertrain, I mean, you know. Um, no infrastructure. Yeah, so you, you, whatever you think of what he's doing, you have to admire the man. Yeah, yeah. sure. Matty? Yeah, I also met Elon uh, a couple of times and I guess that you know, probably we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him, because he proved the model of um, startups mm -hmm. in the auto industry. Well, I started a company before he was, uh, he took over Tesla. So I still remember Martin Eberhardt and all that. I was following it from, from day one and when Tesla stocks were like, you know, $20 flat for a very long time. And it, he gets lots of heat and criticism, uh, especially from like, you know, also sometimes very silly things that he's just an investor, he's, you know, that other people are doing all the work and so on. But I know how car companies work, also big ones, as we are working with many of them, uh, behind the scenes. And, you know, the one thing that's different in Tesla than everybody else is Elon. Just Elon and the, what he is doing and how he's running the business and the bold visions and also then execution. You know, I went into a lot of detail with him. He understands. Uh, you know, what's unique about Elon, he has this big global picture, you know, humanity, planetary level picture, you know, making uh, life multiplanetary, but can also drill very much into the details like very few other people. And knowing what's going on behind the scenes of the auto industry, I, I, I would, you know, bet everything I have that it wouldn't be happening right now if it wasn't for Elon and for Tesla. Uh, what everybody's doing now is a pure consequence of Tesla, nothing else. So this is full electrification. And in the last few years, it has really changed. You know, in like five, six years ago, it was still like, mm, you know, they have bad panel gaps. They don't make good cars. They still you know? have bad panel gaps. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> but that, that's like, you know, all the big car companies, they were making, you know, like uh, ridiculing Tesla and looking from above. Uh, and it, it was a winning trick to fool them. They were not serious. Yeah, exactly. So everyone waited yeah, a little that's bit. for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were, they were fooling. Uh, and, and nobody was believing it's a serious thing. 
And then now everybody's chasing after Tesla, everybody. And they are really all in. And all the big companies are really going into electrification. And I know for a fact it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for, for Elon Musk and Tesla. And then so many other things that are inspirational, like you know, reusable rockets, flying to Mars, all of that stuff. And there's a long way to go. And of course, he's, as Christian said, he's a human. He makes mistakes. He might have also many times, you know, uh, announced things that didn't happen or happened too late, you know, announcing every year there will be self-driving cars for five years next year, you know. But, you know, he has done a huge amount of, of work and has accomplished lots of things and really changed the industry completely. The more he fails, the more he succeeds. Yeah, you know? exactly. I, lo I love his courage. And I'm proud that he's a fellow Texan now. I was going to say. He just lives up the road in Austin. Yeah. Met him at Geneva many years ago, asked him a question, and, and he gave me an answer that was way over my head. Um, but again, you know, what, I mean, to, just like what all you guys said, I mean, you know, would, would the OEMs and the governments in the world now be saying we're going, you know, full EV or whatever if it wasn't for this guy getting the ball rolling and having kind of that inflection point, you know? And I think, again, we could go back and forth as far as the virtues of electrification, but one of the things I think is most interesting is just the, the, the from a design standpoint, you have this whole new architecture where you don't have this lump of engine and driveline in the middle of the car that all of a sudden you can do some really cool things. So again, whether it's Tesla, SpaceX, now Twitter, um, you know, I love that he's a free speech, libertarian kind of guy. Um, again, you know, he's human and, uh, you know, he fails like we all fail. And when he fails, it's pretty, you know, it's obviously it's in the, in the public eye, but just think of just the value, of the, 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 the jobs that he's created, the technology that he's created, the, the, all the other OEMs playing, trying to play catch up with them. And again, I'm joking, I've got a Tesla Plaid and it's got crappy panel gaps, <laughs> but, but the technology really works and it's fast and uh, the charging network really work, works well. So I, I just, as an entrepreneur, I, I have huge admiration for the, like this guy is like, he's the king of the double down. like. You know, you have to like literally like bury the guy in a in a in a hole or something to like <laughs> stop him from what doing whatever he's trying to do. You don't know he you don't know how he's going to get there. And he he may not know how he's going to get there, but and you know, people criticizing him and also like accusing him now to do whatever Twitter just to make money and so on. Like he's so much beyond that point that people don't realize. Like he's worth billions and billions, like hundreds of billions, and people look from their perspective. And you know, 99% of the people would long, long, long time ago, you know, throw in the towel, I made it, you know, enjoy their life. He is crushing himself to get to move forward on all these fronts and exposing himself to hatred of so many people and to uh, public criticism, while he uh, like selfishly doesn't need anything. So I think that's also uh, very admirable that despite, you know, uh, you know, he can do anything he wants in the world, but he is committing his life and working day and night to, to push the he's, world forward. He's authentic about what he's doing. I think he's well, kind of the same guy, has integrity, well, whether you like it or not. I think this is probably the right moment for me to introduce our special guest today, which is Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> sorry, he was, uh, he was washing his hair today. I couldn't make it. Um, all right, I think we've got time for one more topic. I'll, I'm jealous, I want to pick one myself. Right. Is that all right? Yeah. There we go. Oh, I think I'm giving it a spin. Okay. I think right. while you're doing that, just a quick note on just general electrification for cars. We're all kind of advocating the combustion engine and so on. But I think for generally speaking, for, for all the cars out there on the road for daily transport, it doesn't make a lot of sense to keep the combustion engine, just to make that clear. It's for the kind of 
this fun weekend warrior uh, kind of thing, or to make the old cars, of course, behave better. Unless you live in Texas and you got a pickup truck and you want to pull a trailer. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, Fine. You, you, you sort of touched on um, synthetic fuels or, or carbon carbon negative fuels. Is that the kind of savior of the combustion engine going forward? Because in the UK, I mean, at least, we have these. these I would put it like this: uh, it's 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 a good enough excuse, and it will not kill the planet to have fun with cars, but it will not be better than electri electrifying the whole car fleet. But you can have both, and you can have a, maybe a better mix than just electric cars in a way, because the weekend warrior, why should you have batteries parked in your garage that you have to change after 10, 15 years, even if, even if they're not used? It's better they're out being used in your regular car, and then you run on your expensive, renewable, CO2-negative fuel for the weekend and have more fun in a lighter car with more noise. Yeah, hopefully there'll always be room for well, in a few years, aren't we all going to be like flying around in our autonomous drone where we just like crawl, <laughs> crawl on the back of our drone and just go to sleep? That's and what I've been work. told. That's, that's, that's what a, I've been told, right? With your VR goggles on and you're being somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in your Top living drone room. magazine, yeah. yeah. Great that's future, guys. That's, that's, that's the big change we've got coming up. But maybe a bigger question is actually not just electrification, but ownership. That's another can of worms. Oh, yeah. well, I'm not sure if you want to open, want to open it up. Okay. No, the whole, the whole model of, of how we buy cars, how we use them, how we own them is, is going to change radically. If you buy them. Well, if, exactly. But um, I was saying earlier, let's hope we're logical in the future and allow this, but human beings are not rational. People like to own things. I mean, it would have made sense to, to borrow cars or uh, ride hail share in your community already for 10, 15 years with the computer internet technology we've had with apps and phones, but people like to own things because we are not rational, we're emotional, but sometimes logical. Okay, well let's put a pin in that idea that all cars on the road, nearly all cars are gonna be electric and we're gonna own them in weird and wonderful ways in the future. And come back to my topic, which is, uh, ah, you've got one last tank of fuel on Earth, or, one battery of electricity, if you prefer. Um, what car are you putting it in, and where are you going to drive it? Uh, series three Lotus Elan uh, and the Highlands of Scotland. The probably the quickest answer all day there. As you've you've thought about that one before. Haven't you? Well, it's just yeah, I, I have been asked that before actually, and and it's still, in my opinion, probably the best handling uh, sports car that's ever been made. I have the modern it. version of that. I have my Mazda Miata from when I was 19 years old. Um, and I drive it mostly during the summers, but still drive it yeah, every week more or less. And I would put the fuel in that car. If anybody wants to know what good steering is, just jump in the 60s alone. I tried to beat it with the F1 and failed. <laughs> tried to beat it with the rocket and failed. So, um, what is it? What's the secret? Yeah, what's the secret? What's the secret? <laughs> well, it's, it hasn't, if you analyze the geometry, it hasn't got, I mean, I've got, I've got very strict uh, parameters around steering geometry on caster trail, pneumatic trail, and all that stuff, uh, anti dive. And, and it, it actually breaks two of my rules. Um, There's some hidden flicks. And, and yet it still works. <laughs> it's just the best feedback you can actually ever get in a motor car. So actually there's a set of rules and then there's just some magic dust in the there. The truth somewhere. is between the parts. Yeah. Okay. Well, Christian, you, you said your car, but you didn't say where you would drive it. Oh, um, I would drive it on Iceland, just to say something interesting. <laughs> I drove a Koenigsegg on Iceland once, it was pretty cool. It looks like you drive, you're on Mars and you have these kind of spewing geysers and things, and no cars and fun roads. 
fantastic. For me, probably E30 M3. That was always my dream car, and I got lucky enough to buy one uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it's beautiful. Maybe not that exciting to drive as I was expecting, but it's, it's the be most beautiful car for me ever. And I will drive it uh, towards my hometown uh, of Livno in Bosnia, where you have like this amazing road, where, which is still not discovered. And maybe this is not good to say it here because there is nobody there. It's, I think, the best driver's road in the world. And it has like wild horses running around you while, while you drive there. So it's amazing. Wow. Didn't, you, didn't, didn't it all start with an M3 for you that you converted to electricity? Was it? it was a 1984 323, normal 3 series, that I used to drift with and the combustion engine blew up and yeah, then I the made rest of history, right? Yeah. <laughs> 15 years later. <laughs> John? So I just turned 60 a few weeks ago. My uh, wife and five kids bought me a kind of a, well, a better version of my first car, which was a 1969 Oldsmobile Cutlass 442 convertible. It's an old school muscle car. So driving that car uh, on the Pacific Coast Highway, somewhere between Carmel and Big Sur, and uh, yeah, that'd be good. one good tank of gas. So no hypercars or megacars. You know, what does this mean? I went back and forth. <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to talk about you know, like our latest and greatest, but you know, again, that seems to be the obvious answer. I think we could all kind of talk about yeah. what's our favorite car. It's the next car that we're working on. Exactly. The current one we're working on, right? Exactly. But we've all said that before, so I feel like kind of the theme with like kind of the cars that kind of got us inspired and kind of go, got us going early, and I was running errands with my wife a couple days ago in my old convertible, and it's just something special about that. Well, it's interesting what, what you say there, and this might be a nice kind of point to finish on, is where your inspiration comes from, because all of these cars you're talking about, they kind of hark back to some hazy days in the past that remind you of good times, right? So it's not all about bleeding edge technology, it's about humans and emotions, and we're, we're flesh and bones after all. So what what, Maybe uh, just a quick answer each and what your personal inspiration is, cars, people, objects, whatever you like. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always been the thrill of speed and the, the emotion of the driving experience, the sound, the vibration, the acceleration, whether it's, you know, zero to 60 in six seconds or zero to 60 in two seconds or whatever it might be. But I also feel like as I've gotten older, the friendships, the rivalries, the camaraderie um, <laughs> internally with other brands, manufacturers, the media, it's, you know, again, that's, I find a lot of uh, satisfaction in the relationships that kind of have evolved from that initial passion of automotive and, you know, wanting to, wanting to make a, you know, make a little bit of noise in the car world. And so, yeah, the people. For me, it's purely technical. Like, <laughs> I had, you know, with Envera, I had this idea of like four electric motors and, you know, battery in the middle and stuff like that. And, you know, it's easy to have the idea, but it takes so much, as Christian said, blood, sweat and tears of so many people mm -hmm. until you realize that and then you sit in that car and, you know, in the beginning it doesn't work and then a lot of iterations, you're driving it very early on and um, now it's finally finished and you sit in there and I look around and I know everything about every part, how it came about, why it's like that and how it could be a lot better next time. Uh, and same with, you know, the next Bugatti now, I had... A very clear idea. As soon as we started to talk about Bugatti, I knew exactly what I would like the next Bugatti to be. And three years I'm now working on that, and three more years, and it will be there, uh, hopefully. Uh, and that's kind of like, you know, this process of having an initial idea, 
maybe some interesting technology or some interesting performance that you want to explore. And then going through that journey and then like you sit here and there's just air around you. And then a few years later, you sit around something that's such a complex machine out of carbon fiber and aluminum and titanium and copper and, you know, and it just, you know, surrounds you and you drive it and it just came out of your head. So that's kind of the fascination for me and like doing the next thing, like, is it possible? Like you have this idea in your head and like maybe somebody would say it's crazy. Like somebody would have said maybe 10 years ago that an electric car can have 2000 horsepower and drift like crazy and go under two seconds, zero to hundred. And then you do it and then it's already like old news for you. And it's like, you want to do the next thing and the next thing. But do you ever think when people tell you you're crazy that anymore, the older I get, I feel like that's a validation that I'm onto something, right? <laughs> you're crazy, you shouldn't do that. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, easy one for me. It's all, it's all about the interaction between human and machine and the feedback and the feel. And that's not just the way the car handles or steers, it's also the sound, in, in my case, nostalgia with some of the old cars. A good example of that is one of my favorite go-to cars in summer is a, a 59 Healy Sprite, which is not modified. I haven't put the 1275 in. It's got 43 horsepower. It drives completely on the throttle. You don't need the steering wheel. It oversteers everywhere, and it's just fun. And I lusted after one when I was 17, and my dad would never stretch to a, a Sprite. So just the whole experience of, of what the car gives you and the whole the whole feel of it um, is is what uh, I get a buzz out of and up until 78 I drove every one of my Formula One cars for example and the feedback you know with whether it had the V8 or the V12 or the flat 12 um, the, the feedback from the engine and the feedback from the car just just driving a Formula One car even at 90 percent you know was just such a great experience yeah. Well, I think for me, uh, when I think back as a, as a young boy, I was fascinated by any car, a rusty old beater, it didn't matter. And I, I started thinking, why was there such a fascination about just any car? I think it's the ultimate tool of freedom. If you take a train or a bus or something else, it takes you somewhere. You can't just suddenly change your mind and go elsewhere. Planes are out of reach for most people and you can't actually land or take off anywhere. And a motorcycle, you can go far, but it's very weather dependent and so on. So the, and a boat, of course, you can go places, but you're also, you're not landlocked, you're waterlocked. So if we stay on land then for this, but uh, it's the ultimate freedom machine. You can jump in with a very little amount of money, buy something cheap and go anywhere quickly and change your mind and go in another direction. So I I, when I look back, I think that was my main fascination. And, and I had to start a company which made few cars because I had a small company. So, uh, and it, they needed to be hand built and that becomes expensive per piece. So how do I sell them? Well, they need to be very exciting and cool then. So that kind of escalated into this point. It doesn't mean I necessarily were mostly interested in hypercars. It might mean we might build a few more cars going forward in the future when my company has the opportunity to build a few more. But it kind of just quickly went there because that was kind of a mode or survival. But the fascination was that it's the ultimate freedom tool on planet Earth. Well, gentlemen, that has been an honor. That's been absolutely fascinating. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. The chance to share some of our ideas and inspirations. And uh, yeah, just thank you again for coming down and, and joining in with this. Uh, it's been fantastic. Should we get Stig to make us a drink? 
Sounds good. Make it a double. Thank you for listening to the Top Gear Magazine podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. And don't forget to subscribe, to leave us a review, to leave us a star rating. But also check out what is in the rest of the feed because as well as interviews, we've got our monthly uh, behind the curtain look into the issues that we make. And also there's some new audio tidbits coming. So like Jack says, subscribe. 